but moments that matter. Moments that matter. Moments that matter. Welcome to this latest edition of the Moments That Matter podcast series. And today we're going to be talking to Peter Coronius, who runs his own meditation training service called Serenity Works. And not surprisingly, today we're going to be talking to Peter about meditation and mindfulness and his history with using these techniques and how he has and how he has shared that to executives and leaders within the corporate sector in order to assist them and give them the sort of positive results that he saw in utilising meditation during the period that he spent as CEO of the Internet Industry Association from 997 to 2011. And in addition to sharing his own story, Peter also helps us to understand some of the misconceptions around meditation, the difference between meditation and mindfulness, such that there is one, and walks us through some of the mistakes that people, including myself, have made when trying to implement meditation practices in their own lives. So once again, this is a quite wide-ranging conversation, but hopefully it'll serve to give you a better understanding of meditation practices and how important those techniques can be towards preserving and improving your mental health. So thanks again for joining us, and I hope you enjoy our conversation today with Peter Coronius. So Peter, thanks for joining me today. I'll get you to start by just telling me a little bit about your career to date, and in particular, how you came to be involved in meditation and mindfulness. I'm not sure how far back you want to go. I started life in Western Australia, did a degree in uh, science, agricultural science, and then went on to become a human biology teacher, actually. I'd studied a bit of neuroscience along the way through and was very, very interested in really the brain and human behavior was always a very long-standing interest of mine. My uncle, my maternal uncle, in fact, is a leading neuropathologist. So even from one of the earliest memories I actually have as a child is going into his laboratory probably I was around about the age of 10 and he was showing me all these brains human brains in buckets and rather than being repulsed by it I was actually completely fascinated how it was that an organ weighing two and a half kilos or thereabouts could be responsible for everything we think feel sense and uh, identify you know as as who we are as people and I think it sort of struck me as uh, quite bizarre actually that we could be reduced to a brain in a bucket at the end of our lives and people say well that's who they used to be <laughs> <laughs> so it's never felt that quite real to me and then moving forwards um, in my very early 20s I went and learned meditation with my father actually who was a businessman he was quite dressed at the time and I said well let's go learn this thing called meditation and he was actually quite open to it and as a result of that began my journey back in 1977 actually I was just trying to calculate today that was about 44 years ago that I actually began meditating in fact it was a bit earlier from books at about the age of 15 I was intrigued by supernatural and all the things that young boys are interested in I suppose magic and stuff like that so I don't know it's hard to know exactly when these sort of progressions begin but certainly by the age of my early 20s I was very well and truly on my way uh, in my meditation practice and I guess over the course of the next 40 or so years that that really experience has deepened 
Um, I then began a corporate career. I went back and did a law degree and found myself leading the Internet Industry Association in Australia in 1997, which was a roller coaster ride through the, the you know the early development of the internet here and all the way through to becoming mainstream. And I, I just remember thinking at the time that the meditation, the daily practice I did, was really my secret weapon. It was the thing that I was relying on to manage, a, as you can imagine, a highly demanding environment, both at the political end, the media end, dealing with uh, all the emergent problems of the young internet. And just feeling that the daily retreat back into my meditation time was really the source of my strength, my inspiration, my resilience, and, and I guess my capacity as a leader to become a leader in, of an industry. I didn't tell many people about my practice. Back in those days, it was sort of still considered to be a bit left field. But uh, all that changed in the late, about 2011, I left that position in the end after 13 and a half years. And I was sort of taking time out thinking about what I wanted to do next, which is a, sort of a big call after such a huge role. It's people that have left leadership roles who understand there is a natural period where, if possible, you should take time out to reflect on the significance of what you've achieved and what more you might contribute. And it was in that period that I became aware of some very interesting neuroscientific studies that were emerging out of institutions like Harvard, Massachusetts General Hospital, UCLA, that for the first time were able to show physical changes to the human brain as a result of people learning meditation, practicing meditation. And so there were three or four key studies, actually, that were hugely influential in me realizing that this was an opportune time to bring meditation back into the corporate, corporate sphere, cloaked as it was with the respectability of some scientific underpinnings that could now demonstrate objectively that the benefits that meditators report subjectively actually had a basis in in their in changes to their physical brains. So it was on that basis that I formed my company Serenity Works and began um, corporate programs for senior executives, leaders, people that were interested in managing stress, but also, I guess, deepening their experience as humans. So that, in a nutshell, was my trajectory. And today I run a community program where I live in regional New South Wales but also have this corporate program. And in addition to all that, I'm also still active in the internet policy space as a cybersecurity advisor uh, at the global international level. So when you're and talking about of, there, Peter, the science behind meditation, what are we talking about? I mean, we're talking about tapping into untapped areas of the brain or expanding your field of thought. Uh, explain it, I guess, in layman's terms, what, what the science has showed, what it does to people's brains. At a very high level, what the science is now consistently showing is that people that meditate, particularly those that have meditated for some time, actually develop structural differences in their brain that improve their, their ability to manage stress and, more importantly, govern areas that control their ability to process information and to uh, tap into memory, insight, inspiration and creativity in ways that are not generally available to people that haven't sort of done the work in this area. So I suppose for me, what that means is that, you know, you're unlocking latent capabilities in the brain 
things that, you know, they say that we only use 10% of the brain. Well, I think what we're doing is we're tapping into the other 90%. And the flip side of that is that in very stressed brains, particularly people that have suffered trauma, depression, and so on, we see changes in the brain that are causing increases in some parts of the brain in an unhealthy way and decreases in others. But the fascinating thing that this science is showing is that those changes are actually new, uh, is uh, those changes are actually reversible under the principles of what we can now call neuroplasticity, which I'm sure people have heard of. Mm. So the neuroplastic changes in the brain work in two directions when you meditate. They move to increase the uh, neuro neurological development in areas that we, we would consider helpful and highly valuable and decrease the development of areas that would be commonly associated with stress or trauma or depression. And do you look back on your time when you when you were in the legal industry and you had that stressful role and, and I mean were you aware of those changes in within your brain as you were doing meditation or did you learn about them afterwards and then look back and think well that makes sense why that helped me to cope at that time? Well I mean the experience that I had really from the time I began meditating I should just say one thing that the science is also showing that these changes can occur relatively quickly once you begin a disciplined meditation practice. And in fact, the Harvard MIT studies, or sorry, the Massachusetts General Hospital studies done in conjunction with Harvard show that these changes can show up in as little as eight weeks of daily practice after beginning meditation. So I would imagine that in my own particular case, I was already enjoying the benefits of um, what you might call neurological optimization from my early 20s. And, and I would like to think at a time before the sort of typical neurodegeneration sets in, because as you know, typically we're born with a certain number of brain cells and classically it was believed that those numbers decline over age and that neurodegeneration is a, a normal function of aging. But what the new science is showing is that, that those assumptions that could be questioned and in fact, it may not necessarily be the case that we're consigned to a fate of uh, uh, reduction in our cognitive abilities as we get older. And so I think in my own case, I just feel like I'm living evidence for the, the fact that you can maintain very, very high levels of cognitive performance, inspiration, all the things that we value in, in executive leadership. You can develop those and you can sustain those even in the face of you know quite profound and enduring stress environments. So that's the key. Now, I mean, when we look around, the thing that often takes its toll on leadership and, and on senior executives, executive performance, or anyone in the workplace, is that if you're subjected to a daily environment of stress and you don't have outlets through which that stress can be properly released, then over time that has effects on your physical health and also on your mental health. And I think meditation for me is one of the great pathways to re-establishing a healthy physical slash mental body. And I think if, you know, if there's a message to emerge from our discussion today, it is that if you're not already practicing some form of meditation, it's never too late to start and the changes can begin to show up quite quickly. Particularly if you've had proper instruction as a technique that I've developed over the years, which seems to deliver very, very quick results, profound results for people. And it's on that basis that they sort of start to see the benefits. Well, within our, a lot of our training modules that we do within Balance to Life, we talk about meditation and mindfulness together as one thing. But can you explain the differences 
between those two terms maybe and the importance i guess of mindfulness as it relates to meditation yeah well mindfulness is a subset of med it's a form one particular form of meditation but it also refers to a state of being where you're not where you're much more in the present moment as a practice so mindfulness can exist as a standalone practice where you sit you pay attention to everything that's going on and you relinquish thoughts of the future or the past you keep returning to this current state of being but for most people it's very hard to maintain that state of mindfulness during their daily tasks because the first crisis that comes along sort of pushes you off course and before you know it you're caught in a fear response or uh, you know any of the dramas that tend to overwhelm us so now meditation is a much more a general term that incorporates mindfulness but it also incorporates many other practices that may be more suited to certain individuals and so for me personally my view on this is that in in the, the the programs that i teach mindfulness begins to arise quite spontaneously as a byproduct of the meditative process rather than a person having to continually remind themselves throughout the day to be present to be present to be mindful which i think as i say is quite difficult for people to do in spite of that mindfulness does have its place and for people that have got no prior experience with meditation it can be a very good starting point now, some people only ever practice mindfulness and they definitely derive benefits from that so i'm not saying that it's not you know valid in its own right but the way i see it that the state of mindfulness that we seek to achieve is is one that starts to permeate your everyday experience so that you just find quite naturally as a result of these deep immersive practices that i teach you're much more able to just be in the present even without trying well it's interesting you say because i would have thought the same thing like in terms of my experience of mindfulness i sort of thought it might be an introduction to meditation but what you're saying is while it can certainly act as that it's probably better viewed as a result from going through some of the meditative practices then it becomes second nature because it's very hard for it to become second nature if right. it's just something that you you're trying to teach yourself would, yeah. would that be a fair sort of summation there yeah look, look i mean as we're saying this i'm thinking there will be mindfulness teachers that might take a different view on this but in my opinion and based on my experience the, the meditative practices that i teach take you into a state of mindlessness which is effectively that you're transcending mind you're moving outside of the egoic notion of self into another state of being which is at once familiar but also might feel very foreign to people and that's the state that you encounter when you first wake up in the morning before the thoughts kick in and so effectively you might say at that point there is no mind according to the yogis the ancient sages that developed these meditative practices they considered that mind is really just the combination of thoughts that are occurring at any given time and that when there is no thought stream then effectively the mind retreats to a position of stillness and it's in that stillness that the amazing transformation occurs and i believe it's in that the sort of prolonged periods of stillness over time that the neurological changes start to happen so that's the link between the because you might be thinking well how on earth can sitting in a chair you know for 15 20 minutes 30 minutes a day how can that result in changes to your physical brain i mean it seems to defy any concept of what the brain is but in fact it's i believe it's tied up in energy i think that thoughts are a form of energy i think that when you're in different emotional states 
you're carrying different energetic patterns. I think that stress is a, a, a situation where you get blockages in the normal flows of what you might call energy life force in the body, and that ultimately this can precipitate down through the cellular level into physical disease. Meditation is a reversal of that dynamic, whereby immersing yourself in deep states of stillness, you regenerate and effectively reconfigure the energy system of the body. And through that process, healing occurs both at the physical, mental and emotional level. Well, it's almost like a retraining of your brain to some extent, isn't it? Where and and trying to, as we talked about earlier, you talked about, you know, we only use 10% of our brain. We're trying to unlock that 90%. And it's it, it's looking at ways of unlocking um, some of the untapped potential of our brains and how and the impact that can have on our entire bodies. Right. And I mean, the other thing to note is that this is none of this is occurring in a vacuum. We're living in a 21st century society now where our attention is constantly being pulled in a million different directions. We're addicted to devices. We're constantly subjected to images, thoughts, opinions, you know, fears, anxieties, other people's emotional states. And, you know, depression and stress are really at all time high levels. And so the question really to put is what can be done about this predicament? And it's there that the sort of ancient teachings that derive in, in the case of the programs that I run derived from ancient yoga principles. Firstly, we develop a proper understanding of what the mind is. And I've sort of spoken a little bit about that already. But also going beyond that, the main sort of problem that these traditions attempted to address, to solve, was how do we alleviate human suffering? That really is the root cause of the human condition, is that we're born into a world, born into a situation over which we have no initial control, there's no user guide or operating manual that comes with our mind that tells us how we are to be in this world. And effectively, through conditioning, education, and the influences of those around us, society as well, we form you know, a sense of self that may or may not be the best fit for what our optimal condition might look like. And so the yogis sort of backtrack from that and they go, well, let's unlock let's unpack the causes of suffering and then let's see if we can find strategies where we can unwind that where we can effectively hit the reset button recalibrate the psychophysical aspects of that which we define ourselves as uh, another way of talking about that is the ego the role of the ego as self and the identification with the ego and the degree to which we set ourselves up for failure, for stress, for self-sabotage through this over-identification with ego. Now, what meditation does, as I was indicating before, we enter, enter this state of effectively mindlessness, or you could call it self-forgetfulness. What you're effectively doing at that point is you're immersing yourself in a condition which is beyond ego. And at, at that time, when you, when you remove the energy from the sort of ego process, you start to experience yourself as just pure awareness. I don't know if you can identify with what I'm saying, but there is part of you now that's listening to this that is just simply the awareness that hears. When you perceive things through your senses, there is an awareness that perceives. Yep. And so it's that sort of meta state, it's that transcendent state that is beyond the physical, that is the state that we we seek to cultivate or, or better, better still to say we seek to reconnect with. And living more from that state of just 
awareness or present, we gradually begin to lose or, or we, the, the capacity of our egoic mind to influence our emotional states, our stress states, our performance, our relationships, all the areas of, the, of, of ourselves that you know, we're seeking to improve are not generally helped by egoic interventions. The ego is not our friend in many of these situations. So really the challenge in overcoming human suffering is to understand what is the healthy versus the unhealthy aspects of ego. And then the techniques sort of work beneath the surface to uh, give us a more complete understanding of self. Well, to draw it back a bit, I mean, if someone was listening to this and, and hadn't practiced meditation before, but yeah, hopefully we're piquing their interest with the, with the conversation such as this, what's, what's a positive first step you think that they could take to gain a better understanding and an experience uh, with, with meditation? Generally, I, <laughs> I find that when people are ready, the solution appears. I have students coming to me that had no interest or real feel for this in a, at a conscious level. And, some, and then they might hear a podcast like this or see the website or you know, be exposed to a book or a movie or something, and, and something is triggered in their mind. But I think the first step is really the fact that you're even listening to this podcast is an indication that some part of you is hungering for a deeper experience. And so then it's a question of finding a teacher or finding methods that you can begin to employ that to start to satisfy that urge, that craving you have for knowing yourself beyond just you know the body and mind. So that really is the way in which most people are introduced to this. It's through these kind of explorations that we're doing. Asking the questions, what is my life? Who am I? What's my purpose? You know, if I'm not satisfied, why am I not satisfied? What is it that I'm searching for? And of course, the beauty of the systems that we're doing now, because yoga came to the West in the, well, technically in the late 1800s but beyond that in the 70s in particular when i started learning to meditate there was this revolution and it was really this push for humanity to sort of gain a better understanding of itself and how we fit in to the cosmos how we fit in with other humans and and that really is the principal aim of the yogas the meditation programs is to really satisfy that quest that we all carry i think at some level for a deeper understanding of who we are and why we're here and what do you think some mon common misperceptions are around these practices as you talk to people and as you sort mm -hmm. of uh, you know getting getting the word out there and get and i guess getting a, some of your understanding of what they think meditation and, and mindfulness is all about Somewhere along the line, some mythology grew around the idea that meditation means making your thoughts stop. And I've had so many students come to me and say, I've tried to meditate before in the past, but I could never stop my mind. And I sort of laugh because I've heard it so many times. And it's like, I don't know whoever came up with that formulation or whether it was ever stated anywhere. It's just a gross misinterpretation of the process. It's true that during deep meditation, thoughts can stop. But the way to arrive at that state is not through forcibly trying to stop your thoughts. That will never work because thoughts by their nature are, are energies, as I said before. And by focusing on thoughts, even in the form of trying to stop them, you're actually strengthening them. You're re-energizing them. So it's completely counterproductive to use 
brute force, as it were, to try and stop your thoughts. So instead, we use other techniques that are derived from, you know, the ancient practices and a deeper understanding of what mind is and what thoughts are. We actually use very, very clever strategies to put the mind into neutral so that the stillness that lies behind the thoughts, the stillness that lies between the breaths, the stillness that's actually always present but is generally not perceptible because of mind starts to come to the fore. And so the process is really one of just allowing that to occur through the techniques and eventually the thoughts will stop or they'll calm down or they'll at least cease to become distracting. And at that point, the healing process, the restoration, the rejuvenation, reinvigoration all starts to occur because it's actually in the stillness which actually is not quite the same stillness that we retreat to when we sleep, because in meditation, the stillness occurs with awareness. Generally, when you're in sleep, you're not aware of anything. You're in a void. In meditation, it's sort of like deep, it's like the stillness of deep sleep, but with full awareness present. That's the state that we're hoping to achieve. But, but the, 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 the misconception, to answer your question, is really this idea that to achieve that, you must somehow sit there and stop your thoughts. As long as people believe that, they're going to believe that they can't meditate. Well, and along the same lines, I mean, what are some of the common mistakes that you see? Because I've I've done some meditation and probably a year or so, maybe 18 months ago, I was doing some meditation and I got to the point where I did sort of have that, that out of body moment, if you like, mm-hmm. and it was absolutely fantastic. And then I went to do it again and I just couldn't achieve that state again. And every time I'd go to nearly achieve that state, and this is where I think, and I'm going to say the misconception there, where I felt like my brain was clicking in and going, yes, we're about to achieve this state again, and then I'd lose the lose the moment, if you like. I mean, but what what are some of the common mistakes? Well, what, what mistake do you think I was probably doing in that, that case? And what other common mistakes do you see when people are trying to implement these practices? Yeah, and... and it should be noted with me without the sort of expert training that you would have been able to, able to provide. Well, the, I think just hearing that, the, the, the obvious thing is that you approached it with an expectation that you wanted to have a repeat of the same experience that you had before. And in that expectation, you already set yourself up to fail mm. because the state that we seek is very elusive. I mean, we're talking about stillness, which is a zero energy state. I describe it as zero energy. I mean, it's rich and it's full and it's amazing and it's seductive and it will take you into itself and you'll feel unbelievable. But the state itself is not to be approached with too much excitement or expectation. And the yogis give a beautiful example. of They say, imagine that you're trying to approach a deer in a forest. This is the, the deer is this very skittish sort of animal that's you know, very peaceful in its nature, but very easily frightened. So they say that the way to approach the meditative state is as you would approach a deer with, the, with, with so little movement and so little excitement and so little stimulation. So I think that's the key, irrespective of what technique you use, the understanding that the state that we seek to achieve, firstly, we already have, it already exists within us, but it's at a very, very, very subtle level. And so you can't enter subtlety using brute force. An expectation, in a way, is your desire. It's a desire, which is an energy. The desire to have a repeat performance is 
it has to be overcome before you can actually experience the state that you want. It sort of it sounds contradictory. Before you can have what you want, you have to sort of give up wanting it, and only then can you have it. Yeah. Well, it was <laughs> like I had an end goal in mind, and I, mm-hmm. my brain, I guess, was already trying to reach that end goal and get back to that place. And once, yeah. as you say, once you do that, you already put yourself right behind the eight ball. Absolutely. So the thing is, in our society, it's all about doing, isn't it? When you yep. think about it, the secret is not in the doing, it's in the being. Being doesn't require any doing because you're already that. So returning to the essential nature of who you are is to return to a state of a pure state of being. But in order to in order to experience that, you have to negotiate. You have to navigate through the territory of the mind, and that's where people trip up. So that's the key to all this: is just having the right strategies, the right instruction. And then the other thing that you asked me was what mistakes people make. Another thing that I think people do to confound their own progress is that they give up they don't stick with it you see some days you can sit down and have a great meditation and you'll go straight into a deep state and you'll come out feeling amazing another day you'll sit there and you'll feel like all you're doing is battling with your thought and so after a while you sort of lose patience with it and you think oh i can't meditate and then you stop you'll never make progress with that kind of approach you have to really be committed to this and i think the key is and so the reason that so few people excel in meditation um, you know out of those who try it is because they don't persist i mean this is not something that you can download and you've got it like an app on your phone this is something that you actually have to strive for i mean it's unfortunate that in our society we've become very demanding of instant gratification instant everything's instant 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 we want it now with these kind of deeper skills, you actually have to do the work. There's there's no escaping the fact. And you know, the, if you think that you're going to just learn to meditate and that's and then you'll be set, you know, the bad news is no. But I mean, the good news is that, that there is nothing more enjoyable than putting aside the time, making time, and then giving yourself that time to immerse yourself in these beautiful states that becomes so addictive because it's so unlike anything that you're going to find in the external world. The beauty, the expansiveness, spaciousness, the calmness, the sense of perspective, the love and the compassion and the kindness that grow within you. All of the highest qualities that we admire in humanity are already there within you to be discovered. And the commitment is really to yourself. Well, I mean, you said you've been doing it for 44 years. I mean, do, do you find you're still refining some of your techniques and still learning more about meditation, even as your journey progresses? Always. But the thing is, I have a core practice that hasn't changed in that entire time. So you, you commit to the core practice. And as long as you've had proper instruction and, you know, you've, 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 the trainer wheels eventually come off, then you persist with the core practice. And that becomes the central foundation of your entire discipline. But what's great is that around that, you can start to build ancillary practices or enhancements, we call them, where you can explore different aspects of the meditation universe. And gradually over time, according to your inclination, you can start to do different things that, that enrich the entire experience. And there is so much diversity to be had. So you might, you know, embark on uh, practices that improve your capacity for visualization or bring about certain emotional states 
or other practices that are designed to go deep and to remove embedded patterns within your subconscious or your unconscious mind that are governing what might be considered irrational responses, fear, trauma, past trauma, uh, memories, things that are unhelpful, habits that you're trying to break, these are all amenable to change. So effectively, you're crafting you know, a more perfect version of yourself. And there are very, very powerful practices that we introduce our students to at certain points where they can go in and do that kind of work. So, yeah, there's, it never ends. I mean, it really is like, imagine a universe in the inside of you. It's an internal universe and we're, we're explorers mm. in that universe. Well, that, so, that was what struck me. I mean, when I had the, the, the one experience that I did have in meditation, the vastness of what you can explore in, mm. when you reach that state, uh, that's what excited me. It's probably that excitement that, that ended up derailing me. But to your point as well, I didn't persist with it as long as I should have, uh, and, right. and probably you know seek out more expertise uh, to help me in the future. What what positive stories though do you think you can share? I mean, when you look back on your time as, as a meditation teacher, that you mm. feel have, have had a direct positive impact on on people's lives. The the thing that strikes me so consistently is people are shocked and surprised at how quickly they feel much better when they begin to meditate so i think what it is is you get an initial burst of positive results and see if you're bringing the mind from a very disorganized stressed state the, you're going down through layers it's like peeling an onion and and the initial states where you're breaking through just that quite ingrained sort of patterns of thinking or burden that people are carrying it's close to very close to the surface that's quite easy to penetrate and so you'll get a huge lift straight away but the key then is to keep peeling off the layers and going deeper and deeper because it, it does get better and better but you'll go through periods where apparently nothing seems to be happening and it's quite a mystery but in fact it's in the persistence through those times where you're just doing it as the routine, you know, like you're brushing your teeth. I mean, it's a daily practice that you do. Maybe some people do it twice a day. Some people do it as well before they go to sleep for a few minutes. So it's this constant immersion in the state that you begin to take on the qualities of that stillness. And so one of the things that people report is that other people start to comment on how much calmer they are. In fact, quite often others will comment before the person themselves is aware of the change that's occurred. It's quite funny. They'll say, oh, everyone's saying I, I seem a lot calmer these days. And then they'll say, and then I realised I am. <laughs> <laughs> but it sort of can creep up on you a bit. So that, that's one that's pretty common is just this feeling of more being more centred, being more even, being more able to resist the ups and downs, the swings and roundabouts. Uh, the other thing that people notice is that they begin to sleep better. That's always a very early indication of success because one of the obstacles to sleep is actually going to bed with a very busy mind, with things on your mind. And you might find that you go to sleep initially fine, but you'll wake up at 3 a.m. and your mind will be racing. And so what meditation is doing is it's de-energizing that sort of thought field uh, and so that you find that you have deeper, more complete, restful sleeps. And that's something that's obviously quite needed in our society because if you're not getting enough sleep, then it really, you can't really be functioning properly during the day as well. So 
So what else can I tell you? Um, other experiences? I mean, I've had people that have come to me with trauma, uh, very common people that have, have, have anxiety. It's so common. Uh, the COVID thing has been an obvious contributor to general feeling in malaise. I feel in society that there is this growing feeling of malaise, uncertainty, fear. It's there. It's sort of endemic beneath the surface. And I think collectively, whatever we can do to tackle that, and it all begins with the individual. So if, if you're in a bad situation, first, rather than blaming the situation, first see if what you can change in yourself. And another thing then that happens, and they report as well, is they say, my workplace is becoming more harmonious. The more calm, the calmer that I feel, it seems to ripple, to radiate from me. And I find that other people around me are being less combative, less con conflicted, or in the home environment or in relationships, you see the same thing. And I had an interesting case. I taught a vice president, senior vice president of a major technology company from the US. And he said that once I started meditating, he said within three weeks, I started to feel so much calmer and I would go into team meetings. And he said they would become less about me and more about the team. They would be, the, the, the typical conflict situations wouldn't arise. And he said the team members would sometimes come up to me towards the end of that, that, that little period where I began this. And they'd say, I don't know what's going on here, but our meetings seem to be so much more constructive these days. And he'd just laugh. But really, he felt that it was the change within himself that was actually having an effect on the group. And so you can imagine if more members of the group, entire teams, can start putting time aside to de-stress and you know, connect just with the pure state of being. That has tremendous impacts on productivity, on, on their ability to creatively problem solve. I mean, all these higher abilities that we seek to generate you know, are, are best achieved when you've got groups of people working together for a common purpose. And I think this is probably the opportunity for us in these times to embrace. Firstly, let's do the work on ourselves. And then secondly, let's see if we can engender the same kind of approaches across our team. I think COVID has really crystallized people's thinking on the importance of mental health and, and mm. focusing on that. So I think you're 100% you're, you're right when you talk about how meditation is much more, I think people are starting to think, well, what, what, can I, what, what steps can I take, I guess, to improve my mental health and meditation is something that often comes up, but I think people probably don't know quite how to, to best go about uh, implementing those practices into their day-to-day -day lives. How, if you're going to do meditation every day, how long would you have a time that you would say, this is how much time you need to, to set to this each day? And does that start at, a, at a, a higher level and then go lower from there? Or is there a sort of constant amount of time you'd recommend people to spend each day with their meditation practices? Well, I mean, it can depend on the individual. It depends on how much stress you're carrying. It depends on your lifestyle and your commitment. So generally speaking, you know, we, we set a minimum time that we believe is necessary for, you know, the basic level of progress to occur. And that would be say around 20 minutes a day but I mean often you'll get people that are particularly motivated and you would say to them we'll try that twice a day so two two periods of 20 minutes but it's whatever you can do I mean I, I, if, if it's a if someone says why well, there's absolutely no way I can fit in 
two 20-minute blocks or even one 20-minute block every single day, well, firstly, you ask them, well, what else are you doing in the day that maybe ought start taking a lower priority because it's not really contributing much to your to your happiness. And so there could be the need for a bit of reorganization or reprioritization. But beyond that, it's a question of what you can what you can do. So the, the, the techniques that I teach as a particular core sequence I do is designed to deliver benefits for a minimum investment of 15 minutes a day. It's, this is the, the power of the technique is that it's designed for people that are busy, that don't have much time. But I have to say that over time, what, what will happen is that as you go deeper into these states, you will want to spend more time meditating because it is just so fulfilling and and the, the after effects can last for hours. I mean, it sets you up for the entire day. And if you can do it on a regular basis, it's like taking medicine, you know, there are, if you, don't, if you don't take the dosage according to the instructions, you're not going to get the effect. So the same with meditation. It's like you need to maintain basic level of immersion into stillness so that the effects are sufficient that they're going to carry you through the entire day. And so if you can do that minimum dosage, as it were, every day, then you're always going to be feeling in a much better state. There'll never be a time where you'll feel out of control because you'll always be able to quickly return to that state of equanimity because it's never far from the surface because it wasn't that long ago that you sat for meditation. Well, the final question over here today, Peter, is what, what's your hope for the future of meditation? Do you think it's more a matter of getting it out to as many people as we can or do you feel that there's also improvements in the way it can be practiced and, and continue to develop there or is it a bit of both of those uh, sort of things that would be your goals uh, from a meditation teacher point of view any way that you can get into meditation is great some people start by doing apps they download an app and i'll use that for a while but I, I often get people that come to me that have done that for a few weeks or months and then they reach a point naturally in themselves where they want more and at that point, they'll do the instruction because I think it, there's nothing, no substitute for proper instruction from an experienced teacher. It's a bit like climbing a mountain. You can climb it yourself with a map and a compass, or you can go to someone that's been up that mountain a hundred times before that can show you the paths, can recommend approaches for you, and can more successfully guarantee that you're going to reach your goal. But that's really the role of a teacher is someone that has done the work themselves, has been prop properly trained, ideally as part of a tradition. And in my case, you know, it goes back millennia because it's an unbroken tradition that goes all the way back. Uh, and, and we have a lot of respect for the teachers in the lineage and the tradition because of this amazing gift that they've discovered and passed down. And in turn, we pass it on to others through the work that we do. So um, do I think the techniques are going to change over time? Not particularly. I think your human mind is sort of reasonably common across cultures and traditions and generations. That we, you know, we still have the basic infrastructure there of thought, of senses, of emotions, memories, perceptions, associations, all the limit, limitations, the limiting ideas that we hold about ourselves. None of this is new. At all, the human condition, as we understand it, has been written by, you know, as far back as the ancient Greeks, Plato wrote about meditation, talked about the reversal of the flow of attention, awareness, directing it inwards instead of outwards. So these things have been known for a long time. But I guess the refinements and the reapplication 
is something that can change over time and it's something that needs to adapt and will adapt according to the needs of the culture. And that's, I guess, the role that we play today is to acknowledge that people have limited time and so try and find applications of techniques and certain combinations that are going to give them the results that they want in with the resources that they have. So final point, if people want to find out more about uh, the services you provide and get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to go about that? Yeah, um, my company is called Serenity Works, one word, and they can visit serenityworks.com.au. And there's information there about our executive programs, our team programs. We also do a fast track program for new entry entrants into the workforce that we're trying to set them up with some really great coping skills that they can uh, practice and use even before we subject them to the kind of stresses that they're normally going to be facing. So we, I think it's part of executive education. If we're going to be priming our next generation of leaders, uh, the best thing we can do for them, I think, is give them these kind of skills so that they can sort of manage the stresses on the way through rather than having to come back in later and sort of fix the problem. So there's a whole range of different things and there's a very interesting creativity program we do as well, which is specifically directed towards problem solving and tapping into deep insight in a way that goes way beyond brainstorming. So those are some fun things that we can try. So very happy to talk to anyone. And in the meantime, thanks, great congratulations for the work you guys are doing. Great to be sort of connected to people that understand the need for human development and are actually putting that into practice. So great work. So just to reiterate where you can find Peter's details, you can go to his website at serenityworks.com.au and feel free to reach out and contact Peter and see what he may be able to offer you or your organisation from the point of view of meditation training. And hopefully from listening to this conversation today, you'll gain a better understanding of and appreciation for the sort of techniques that Peter teaches through Serenity Works. So we look forward to joining you again soon with another interesting conversation on our Moments That Matter platform.